Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 185, An Army of Translators. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. She is best known for having served for many years as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. Prior to that, she served as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama, both during his campaign for the presidency and in the early years of his administration. She was also the chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton on her 2008 campaign for president and a speechwriter for Senator John Kerry and General Wesley Clark during the 2004 presidential election. About five years ago, Sarah Hurwitz took an introduction to Judaism class that set her on a journey of exploration. Her book, entitled Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, After Finally Choosing to Look There, is the first, but hopefully not the last, contribution she is making to the rest of us flowing out of the journey. The book comes out on September 3rd and is available for pre-order today. By the way, next week we're launching an extended series of episodes about rethinking Jewish education in honor of the beginning of the school year, and throughout the series we'll be taking occasional breaks to interview an author who has a new book coming out that we think makes for important fall reading or a great Hanukkah present. Sarah Hurwitz's book, Here All Along, is certainly one of those. On reflection, though, we realize that this book and this conversation is a great setup for our education series because it's the story of Sarah's journey to educate herself Jewishly as an adult, and it has implications for how we should think about education at any age. So let's get started. Sarah Hurwitz, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, we're so interested in the idea that you have written an introduction to Judaism or a book sort of uh, that, that could function as an introduction to Judaism when you yourself are someone who is not the kind of person that we might typically expect to write an introduction to Judaism. Not, you're not a rabbi. You're not a Jewish professional of any kind. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Yes. So that is indeed correct. I am not a rabbi. I am not a scholar. I don't have a background in Jewish studies. I grew up, I think, like many American Jews grow up, you know, I, I attended Hebrew school kind of reluctantly, did the twice a year high holiday services that I didn't really understand. And after my bat mitzvah, you know, I, I kind of just disengaged. I didn't sort of see anything worth engaging with as a kid and just drifted away. And then about five years ago, I was dating this guy, we broke up, and I was just looking for things to fill my time. And I randomly got an email newsletter about an intro to Judaism class at the local JCC. And I just signed up kind of on a whim to fill time. Like, I wasn't on some big spiritual journey. It wasn't some existential crisis. I just wanted company and distraction. And so I signed up. And what I learned in that class just blew my mind. You know, I was exposed to these texts that showed the deep, profound ethical wisdom Judaism has for how to be a decent person and live a meaningful life. I then started reading more books. I started attending Jewish meditation retreats. And I saw, you know, really sophisticated thinking about theology and spirituality. You know, I think if you are a Jew like me, and you show up twice a year at the High Holy Days, and you read the Siddur, the prayer book, you kind of get the impression that 
God is like a man in the sky who rewards and punishes us as we deserve and just really enjoys our very repetitive prayers to him. That him is in quotation marks. And that's not the case, right? Like once you start learning about Jewish theology and spirituality, you realize there are these wildly diverse ideas about the divine. And so the more I learned, the more I just realized that this is this radical, countercultural, wise, insightful tradition. And I have to say, as I was reading, you know, it was a real struggle because I think for someone like me, you know, the options are kind of nuts and bolts, intro to Judaism books, which are great, but they're more how-to than why-to. Or you can read really sophisticated books, which are kind of hard to access if you don't have a lot of background and just kind of often very dense. There really wasn't a lot in the middle that was geared towards Jews like me that covered the basics, but also offered some of the deeper insights that Judaism provides for us. So I just, after a few years, I just thought, man, I kind of want to write the book that I wish I had. You know, I really approach this like just an average Jew wanting to know, you know what, are, what are the real insights here that will show me how to live a, a worthy life, show me how to be a better person, and show me how to find a deep spiritual connection. And so that's really the sensibility of my book. And before we dive into some of the content of what you discovered, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about how you how you went about writing this book. I mean, I, something that we talk a lot about on our show is what we've called the chutzpah versus knowledge curve, the idea that that sometimes uh, sometimes only the people with a little bit of knowledge or the people with a vast amount of knowledge sort of understand that you can really play around and, and muck around with this stuff. The sad part of that is that people are not bringing their their knowledge, their expertise, their experience that, that so many Jews have that may not be so educated in Judaism, but they may be really educated in science or law or something else. And in your case, as a speechwriter, you write about how you had special skills that you thought could, could help you create that book that, that was the book that you wish you had. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The speechwriter skill that I bring to this is the ability to take things that are maybe a little bit confusing or a little bit esoteric um, and to translate them, to show people where the beating heart of these things are. You know, in, in the White House, I worked with a lot of amazing policy experts, people who are so brilliant and so deeply learned in their specific policy area. But the problem was that if you were to talk to a healthcare expert about a speech that I was writing about healthcare, you know, they might say to me something like, our policy is amazing. It's going to bend the cost curve and improve the delivery system, which is wonderful, but that's not how people think about healthcare, right? They want to know, will this health insurance plan cover the care I need? Will it be affordable? And so I think that sometimes experts tend to sort of focus on these more esoteric details or how the system kind of all works or comes together. It's sort of interesting to them. Whereas an average Jew like me is just wondering, well, you know, how, how does this affect my daily life? How does this transform me? How does this make me a better human being, a better member of my community, a better parent, spouse, partner, friend? You know, how does this help me connect to whatever you call that, that which you connect to, the divine, God, the universe, life? For me, it was really important to find that beating heart, to cut through the rules and the details and all of that and really figure out like, where does this hit people, where they live and breathe? Given that that you went through this incredible process. I guess I'm like a little curious in the before and after photos. Um, like what, what is it 
that and you do a lot of this in your book. I mean, on all sorts of topics from, you know, God to Torah to mitzvot, commandments, um, all sorts of topics. But like, what did you actually see as you started in these intro to Judaism classes in learning with rabbis, et cetera? Like, what's an example or two of of something that you had no idea was present in Judaism or that you didn't know was possible in Judaism that you found over the course of the last few years? Just to take two examples, I think the first one is that, you know, I had no idea that the key animating idea of Judaism, or at least what I think the key animating idea of Judaism is this idea that we are all created in the image of God, right? And you don't have to believe in any kind of God or higher power or divine to see the power of that idea, which as Rabbi Yitz Greenberg often talks about, means that we are all infinitely worthy, we are all totally equal, and we are all unique. Right? These, are, these are three core, what he calls the inalienable dignities. Right? This is a core Jewish idea. This is actually in the Torah. Right? And I think that if you consider that, that that is the core Jewish idea, that is such a radical and countercultural idea. And you might say, no, Sarah, it's totally obvious. Of course, we're all infinitely worthy and totally equal and, and unique. But that, no, none of us really believe that. If we believe that, why would we ever pass by someone on the street who's asking for our help, who's asking for money, why would we ever walk by that person, right? If that person were Barack Obama, I guarantee you we would probably stop, right? But we fundamentally don't think that that person is as equal or as worthy or as unique as Barack Obama, right? If we actually internalize that idea, that very radical idea, our world would look vastly different. That is the core animating idea of Judaism. It was up there on those Torah scrolls my entire life, but I had never seen that articulated in any service or Hebrew school I had attended. I also just think, you know, studying and practicing in my own way, Shabbat, um, that is such a radical idea and such a countercultural idea that one day a week, we essentially engage in a protest against the workaholism, the materialism, the triviality, the consumerism of modern society. And we say, no, boss, I'm not going to answer your emails. No, Facebook, I'm not going to let you advertise to me. No, I'm not going to give in to this mindset that says, buy more, spend more, consume more. You're not enough. You always have to fix some hole in your life. You know, for one day a week, I'm going to just say, no, it's enough. I'm going to rest. I'm going to shut down. I'm really going to create what, ha- you know, what Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel calls the sanctuary in time. Cool. Yeah. I mean, so that's a that's a good start to the question I'm going to a- ask next. Um, and spoiler alert: it's it's your question. Um, <laughs> it's it's the question that titles your intro. The, the The question is why bother with Judaism? Which we've been wrestling with various versions of that question for the entirety of our podcast. And you know, lots of Jews have been doing it for much longer than that. So, so you've mentioned already two really great examples around the image of God. Um, it's Greenberg, who, by the way, shout out, we had him on our show. Um, and you should, and listeners should, oh, listeners should tune him. into that episode. Just wonderful. As is Blue, they are an amazing couple. Yeah. Um, but so you, you've got two really good examples already. But so why why bother with Jewish? Like, why why should we do this thing? Um, and I guess in the book, you you approach it beautifully, both through the lens of those who are Jewish. Um, so the question manifests in one way for them. And also you approach it for people who aren't Jewish in a different way. And I'd love to hear your approach on both those fronts. I think that Judaism offers so much wisdom and insight on 
topics that we don't discuss at the office water cooler or on the sidelines of the kids' soccer games or at, you know, a typical dinner party. Not just questions like, what does it mean to be happy or successful or fulfilled? But like, what does it mean to actually be a really good person? What does it mean to live a truly meaningful and impactful life? What does it mean to be a committed and devoted part of a community that I didn't necessarily choose? Right? Like those are, those are some pretty deep questions that I just don't think you find a lot of spaces in the secular world that are really wrestling with. And I think that Judaism offers some pretty amazing wisdom. But I think, you know, lots of traditions offer wisdom on those questions. Like, right? Judaism isn't the only tradition that does. I think that I'm a big fan of studying many, many traditions and learning from them. I think that they all have incredible moral wisdom to offer. However, you know, Judaism is my tradition, right? It's the tradition that I was born into. It is the tradition of my parents and my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents. And people have sacrificed and fought for many, many centuries to hand it down to me. And in addition, I think it's extraordinary. I think the wisdom it offers is extraordinary. And I, to me, one of the best arguments for being Jewish, in addition to just the extraordinary content, is one that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs makes that I quote in my book, where he, he draws the analogy of being in a library. And he says, you know, imagine you're in this library, there are all these books, they all have wisdom for how to live a good life, all very interesting, you can choose anyone you want, if you like it, read more by that author. If not, put it back on the shelf. At one point, you see a book that has your family's name on its spine, and you're sort of taken aback, and you pull it off the shelf, it's very old, and as you read through it, you begin to realize that actually each page has wisdom about how to live a good life, be a good person, honor tradition. And they're actually each written by a different generation of your family going way back, hundreds of years. And then you turn to the final page, and, or not the final page, you turn to the most current page, and it's blank, and it has your name at the top of it. Now look, are you going to put that back on the shelf? I don't think you are right? Like that book is special. It is the story of your family. I'm thinking about a time when my wife and I went to check out a, a mega church in Chicago just because we were interested in in how it was organized. And we brought our son along, who was probably about three at the time, and we put him in the daycare just to, you know, just because we thought we were leaving him in daycare. And then when we picked him up, we said, you know, how was the time in the daycare? And he said, oh, it's really interesting. Or, you know, he was three years old. He said, it was really great. I, I learned that a sh there's a sheep and there's shepherds and the sheep could fall down and then the shepherd could come and pick him up and it's okay. And he doesn't have to feel bad that he fell. And I was like, oh, my God, they've taught him the entire essence of Christianity in 45 <laughs> minutes, and we can't do that in eight years of Hebrew school. And so I, I guess I'm wondering what's gone wrong? You know, what, what's your sort of uh, uh, prescription for how we might do this better so that a story like yours doesn't have to happen where, where really just sort of, but for the grace of, you know, whatever you believe in, you may have gone along through the rest of your life never having had this experience? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I am actually... I often hear people kind of trashing Hebrew school and really, you know, trashing Hebrew school, Hebrew school teachers. And I totally disagree with that. I think that, you know, what we expect Hebrew school teachers to do is just impossible. We expect them to teach young children a language, right? How to read Hebrew in just two days a week, maybe even one day a week. We expect them to teach kids holidays, life cycle rituals, Israel, history, culture, you know, ethics, all this stuff in what? three hours a week, that is impossible. So we dump this enormous burden on these poor Hebrew school teachers, and then we criticize them for not achieving this impossible task. And, you know, frankly, I think the focus on 
educating our kids right now is really important, but I think it's missing something. And that's the fact that many of us, and I'm talking really about myself, we never grew up in Judaism. We never went beyond our 12 or 13-year-old Jewish education, right? We had our bar bat mitzvahs, and then we drifted away. And then 20 years later, we have kids, and we, all we have to pass down to them is what Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman calls pediatric Judaism, right? So, you know, we're not inspired. We're not excited. Our kids see that. And then we sort of, you know, outsource their education to a Hebrew school teacher, and they have no home practice. And it's just not fair to these Hebrew school teachers. I think the reality is that we all have to grow up, right? I think if you want your kid, and then look, I'm not a parent, so I say this with a lot of humility, but from what my friends who are parents have told me, if you want to engage and inspire your kids in Judaism, you too have to be engaged and inspired, right? So I think that our, our, in addition to educating our kids, we need to educate ourselves. We need to grow up, develop an adult Judaism that moves and inspires and enriches us, and then we'll be able to convey that to our kids. My solution was to spend thousands and thousands of hours reading and learning and going to classes and retreats and one-on-one studies with rabbis. That is totally not a reasonable solution for the average person who is struggling to you know, raise a family, pay the bills, do their job. That's just not a reasonable solution. It's way too much to ask of people. And so I tried to condense what I had found into a book that kind of conveys just the most powerful stuff I found. And I'm hoping that that will help people begin to figure out, okay, here's my general sense of what Judaism has to offer. And then in the back of my book, I, I provide an appendix of resources that allows them to pursue different topics in Judaism as they are interested in. But um, yeah, it's, it's tough. I want to really look at, you, you talk about a set of feelings that you felt in Jewish spaces during your before story, before you went and did all this learning. And you used a phrase that I thought was really beautiful and totally spot on, which is that you felt like you're not privy to an inside joke that everybody else is in on. Yeah. Um, approximately that I might not be getting it. No, no, that's about right. And, um, and you, by the way, you, you mentioned in that same context that like you felt like everybody went to Jewish summer camp and you were the only one that didn't go to Jewish summer camp. Um, a, a lot of things to unpack in just those sentences, but I really, th- there's so much to go into in terms of all of the things you have learned since you had those feelings and then acted on them. But I actually want to just give you the opportunity to talk about like what what happened for you in those moments? Because I don't think it's just you. Like I, I think that you're speaking for a huge group of people, um, many of whom have not been comfortable enough to say publicly that they are such a person, that they don't know everything. Um, I, I'm curious, um, and also as somebody who I identified in that group myself for a long time, who felt like I didn't know something that everybody else in the room knew. What do you think is creating those sensations in people? Like, why do people feel like they have to have this master's degree level of knowledge that maybe other people in the room have, but maybe actually they don't? So I I think a lot of it comes down to immersion as a child, right? Like if you were, as a kid growing up, immersed in a lot of Jewish spaces, synagogue, you know, Jewish youth group, summer camp, I think that you have a, a kind of comfort in those spaces, right? Like you're, you're used to it, you know the songs, you know the tunes, you know the rituals, you know the traditions, it just feels like your own. I think if, if that's something that you have in a really deep way growing up, especially if you have it at home, right? So I think that once you're an adult, you kind of walk into a Jewish space with an assumption that you belong, with an assumption that 
you're going to know basic practices, the basic rituals, and that if you don't, it's okay. It must, oh, that just must be their local iteration, but I, I got it. I'm good. But I think for those of us who didn't grow up in it, there's often just an assumption that we're going to know what's going on and we don't. You know, I think I felt this a lot when I first started attending Shabbat dinners. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with the rituals. We hadn't done these in my home and I found it terrifying, right? Like, am I going to be the person, you know, everyone like me remembers that time when they spoke and you're not supposed to speak after the hand washing and before the blessing over the challah and like you speak and everyone looks at you like you are just, you know, you've committed this terrible faux pas. And by the way, there's no halakha behind it. It's just a custom. Yet people take it really seriously and it's embarrassing. You know, I have written an entire book about Judaism. I spent thousands of hours doing this and I still sometimes feel uncomfortable in Jewish faces. You know, often when I go to Shabbat dinners, it's like, I'm doing great, I'm doing great, I get it. And then we get to the benching, which are the blessings after the meals. And they're really fast and they're all in Hebrew and I can't read the Hebrew quickly enough to keep up. And I just feel like, man, busted, right? Like I just, like they got me, they got me. They know, they, they know, they know. But, you know, that doesn't reflect a lack of knowledge or education on my part at this point. It reflects not having grown up with that, not having gone to camp. So I think immersion in those spaces it can be part of what makes people comfortable. But I also think, but I don't want to put the burden on the, the people who didn't grow up with that because that feels a little unfair. I think there needs to be a little bit more of a burden on the people in those spaces to not make assumptions about what people's knowledge is. You know, just because I walk in with a name like Sarah Hurwitz doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to know what's going on. And so, you know, I try to be very, very careful in any kind of Shabbat dinner I host, any event I do, just to go out of the way to explain things, even if it's quick, even if it's, you know, whatever it is, just to make it clear that I don't assume that anyone has done these things before, knows about these things. I think that that's just incredibly important. You know, I, I think it's uh, not too much of a spoiler to say that in the conclusion to your book, you talk a lot about our first ever guest, B'nai Lappi, and uh, her yeah. conception of what she calls option three Judaism, which is the idea that uh, that you can kind of uh, basically design a new Judaism after the old one has crashed. And I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, translating your story about, you know, attending the Shabbat dinner where you accidentally speak or you don't realize that you shouldn't speak between washing your hands and saying the motzi over the challah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking like the story, like let's imagine the Sarah Hurwitz from the first century who somehow, you know, comes back from uh, Rome and <laughs> decides to learn about Judaism and then shows up at the at the temple and starts trying to figure out how to offer the sacrifices and, and whatever and gets all confused. <laughs> And we know from history that actually that Judaism was not the Judaism that was going to survive into the next couple of millennia. And and to contrast that, where you just talked about having your own Shabbat dinner, where you're very careful to not uh, make people feel awkward and to explain all those things. So, you know, I'm thinking about how do you think about your future, the future, when you sort of think about those two possibilities, because there's the one where the person somehow self-educates, but then is really seeking to go into existing Jewish spaces and feel comfortable and feel part of it. And that may or may not happen versus people who self-educate and then go off and, and, and experiment and create new things where they're never going to feel awkward because they're the creator of it. And, right. um, you know, so, so I'm wondering how, how you sort of see this going in, in the future. And, and, you know, because I think there, there's a tendency to 
have a book like yours and imagine that the positive outcome from it is that people will read it and start learning and then kind of start showing up at services and whatever and, and, and integrating into the Jewish community as it is. But that's not really the way that you end the book. You end it with, in a way, a different charge similar to B'nai Lappi's. And so I'd love to hear your reflections on that at this point in the process. Learning about Judaism, it's not just important for us to, to sort of so that we can go into existing spaces and do what they're doing there. It's critical for us because you have to have, I, I so agree with B'nai Lappi that you have to have some really deep knowledge in order to go into those spaces and recreate them. I am the biggest critic of the kind of Jewish experiences where you're just going through the motions because that's what your parents did. You don't understand what's happening, but you're just doing it because we just have to do it and that's our obligation. I think I want to continue doing those high holy day services, that Seder, you know, these life cycle rituals, but I think we have to understand them deeply. We need to really dig in, understand the history, the, the halakha, the, all the Jewish law around them, and only then can we reimagine them. To give people even the most basic background knowledge so that they understand the contours of Judaism is a huge task. I mean, just think about the phrase, the rabbis said. Say that to someone like me five years ago, and I'm like, sorry, sorry, who are the rabbis? Oh, right, back when the temple was destroyed in the year 70, whoa, 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 the temple. Oh, right, okay, so we used to sacrifice animals at a temple in Jerusalem. Wait, 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 why were we sacrificing animals? Well, okay, the Torah said that, oh, okay, wait, sorry, what's the Torah? What, what's the thing on the scrolls, but what is it? What does it say? Okay, it took me two chapters in my book to explain the phrase, the rabbi said, right? And I think that we have to just stop and accept the fact that we are the proud inheritors of a, of a tradition that involves a tremendous amount of knowledge. It's deep, it's rich, it's complex, it's sophisticated, it is for smart, thoughtful, edgy, interesting people. Let's embrace that. This actually isn't an easy, low bar to engagement tradition. It's actually something deep and wise and amazing. And don't tell me that Jews won't engage with something like that. We do all these kind of personal challenges and, and practices, of course, we'll engage with this if we see that there is something worth engaging with, which there is. And the key is to, sh I think, to show Jews and those interested in, in becoming Jews that there is something extraordinary here. And that if they're willing to put in the time and effort, they will just be transformed. So I have a weird direction. I promise it will end up making some amount of sense. Sure. I want to talk about the Avengers. Okay. The and specifically, I want to talk about the Marvel cinem Cinematic Universe. Um, because I think that what you just spoke about in terms of um, Judaism, not creating Judaisms where it's just the pieces that we like and then we throw in the other pieces from other traditions that we like, um, I think that there's something there. So conventional wisdom forever in terms of movies was that you you can't expect your viewers to have seen a bunch of other movies. I mean, if you've got like a trilogy, if it's the third in a series, like you can sort of expect that they've seen the first two. But like the idea that you could create 20 or however many movies there are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are all self-referential and, and calling on each other and like forcing you on some level to have known what, what else has happened in the series is wild. And everybody that you can find, if you Google, you can find all these articles about how this is a ridiculous idea from, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, whenever, like, that this was is never going to work. And here we are with Avengers movies breaking every box office record there is, because it turns out people actually do like being asked to, to have a mastery of other material. And there is a magic in walking into a movie theater and being like, wow, elements of 
past versions of me that have seen this and like are going to come back today and I'm going to journey with certain characters that have been in like 20 different movies. Like, I think there's something really there. So I guess I, I wanted to ask you, because you, you talk about the, this piece in your book too, like what is it about specifically the systemic nature, the systematic nature of Judaism, where you have all this material, some of it being terrible and morally problematic, some of it being incredible and morally empowering, some of it being like, eh, neutral in the middle. Like, <laughs> what is it about having all of that, but like sort of all of it is yours that is important? You, I think you put your finger on something so important. Everything in Judaism is hyperlinked to everything else. You can't study the holidays or practice the holidays without knowing anything about Jewish history. You can't do the life cycle rituals without knowing something about halakha, Jewish law. Like it's all linked together. And so it's very hard to know where to start, right? Like that's, you, I mean, it's like the Talmud, right? If you study the Talmud, the ancient commentaries on the Torah and other things, you know, there's no like starting point, right? You, anywhere you, you go in, they assume you've kind of studied the whole thing. The, the first sentence is from when do we say the Shema? Which is like, <laughs> exactly. what's the Shema? Like it's a, it's exactly. a ludicrous thing. That's there's the first no, sentence of the Talmud. Exactly. Like there's no, you know, there's just an assumption that you've been in the stream. And look, let's be honest, that made sense at one point, right? Where Jews lived in very insular communities and Judaism was an immersion experience, right? From the day you were born to the day you died, you were heavily immersed in this Jewish culture. We don't live that way anymore, right? Like we are not, it is not kind of as much of an immersion experience as it used to be. And we've tried to kind of make it into an American style once a week religion, right? With a Sunday school and all of that. And it doesn't quite translate that way, right? It's actually very, very hard to teach this vast, deep immersion experience twice a week or twice a year or whatever, right? It just, it just doesn't quite translate. But I think you're also right that if it's excellent, like if it's really excellent and transformative and amazing, people will do it. They'll do it because they're getting something amazing out of it. And I think that fortunately, that's the case with Judaism, right? Fortunately, we have something extraordinary, but I think the challenge is giving people a way in so that they can actually kind of go in and feel like, okay, I have enough of a net in which to catch these experiences, in which to catch these texts and these services and these celebrations, like I, I kind of get enough what's happening. And that's what I sought to do with my book. Interestingly enough, I think some of the readers who liked my book best were very, very observant, educated folks who said like, this is so interesting. Like, yeah, you cover the basics, but you also have all these insights and these fresh takes and approaches on Judaism that I never would have thought of as someone immersed in it. To me, what that says is that it is so critical for Jews like me, folks who didn't grow up to the, with this stuff, folks who come to it late, and engage deeply as adults, it's so important for us to do that and to share what we found because I think our beginner's mind, our fresh perspective, our sort of really fresh appreciation for this can inspire and enliven other Jews. And I'll tell you, in the two intro to Judaism classes I took, the folks who were converting to Judaism, who were Jews by choice, they had the freshest, most interesting insights on Judaism. You know, they were the ones who really helped me fall in love with the tradition. So I think that that fresh approach is also just so important. Yeah, there was a line in your book that I, I love so much when you, you talked about how you approach Judaism as a guest and a lot of folks in your classes that were converting to Judaism approach Judaism as a guest in a way. And you said, uh, and I can tell you that guests don't just notice a home's flaws, but also its beauty. 
And I, and I thought that that was just such a beautiful line about the importance of people who don't necessarily know, who aren't necessarily immersed, and, and the, the critical importance of, of understanding that they not only uh, are there to be taught or to be somehow changed, but that they, they are bringing new ideas of their own that are, are critically important to, to embrace and to help, help them understand how important they are in, this, in the future story as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to pivot a little. Um, here we are with somebody who was a speechwriter for Barack Obama and then most prominently with Michelle Obama. And we haven't talked about that yet. Um, and I, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm really pleased about that because I hope it demonstrates that we think that you really have a lot here to say about <laughs> Judaism itself and not just about those pieces. But on the other hand, like, let's do that because um, do it. it's cool. But um, <laughs> I, I want to I ask, given – so you've talked about how you had – very little Jewish knowledge for a long time, Jewish background, and then et cetera, et cetera. And I, I sometimes chuckle to myself when people say like, "Ugh, I never did anything Jewish. I was just out there working for social justice and like being part of trying to make the world a better place through my job in politics. It's, it's like always funny to me because it's like, well, you're kind of doing a certain set of Jewish things very effectively. Um, but so I, I did want to ask that like, to what extent retroactive so i guess there's two levels to this to what extent at the time when you were when you were working with the obamas doing speech writing work like to what extent did you conceptualize that as jewish and to what extent didn't you and also like would you retroactively see it as jewish in ways that maybe you didn't at the time or would you still sort of stand by you know it wasn't i, I wasn't consciously doing it from a jewish place so maybe it's not quite the same thing so I think that you are just, you're so right that engaging deeply in the work of social justice is, is profoundly Jewish. It also happens to be profoundly Christian and profoundly Muslim and profoundly what decent secular people should do as well. There is nothing that's just Jewish about engaging in social justice. So you know, when, when folks tell me, oh, you know, doing social justice is how I do Judaism, that's definitely true, but it's also how you do Christianity and Islam and many other traditions. So, but that said, Judaism has a very specific approach to social justice, a very specific perspective on how you help those who are struggling, on what justice is, what fairness is, what equality is. And I think it is so critical to dig into those specifics and to understand what it means to redeem the world in a Jewish sense. So I think that once you've done that work, then I think doing social justice becomes a deeply, deeply Jewish thing, right? I think doing it without any of that knowledge or any of that purpose, yeah, of course it's still Jewish. I mean, there's no question about that. But is it deeply Jewish? Is it meaningfully Jewish? I'm not sure. For me, it wasn't, right? But once I actually studied Judaism and engaged in Judaism, I began to understand, oh, every day I am bringing the principles of in the image alive because I believe that people are infinitely worthy, totally equal, and fundamentally unique. And every speech I write, Every cause I fight for is bringing those ideas to life. Once I understood the idea of the stranger and the entire, all of the thinking around helping the stranger, the person who is not the member of the group, the real outsider, that truly vulnerable person, I could understand the work I was doing around that in a very Jewish lens. So to me, actually having that deep Jewish knowledge was what made my work Jewish in the White House. To me, deeply Jewish. Was it Jewish before? Of course it was but not deeply and meaningfully Jewish. 
Well, along those lines, I'm thinking back to how you started this conversation. You talked about how you weren't pursuing a particular driving need when you started learning about Judaism. You were just doing it because you had some extra time and it seemed interesting, but then you were pulled into it. I'm wondering, as you think about how others might decide to pursue this, whether reflecting back on what on things that you may have been conscious about and may not have been conscious about, were there needs that you were actually finding very quickly in that class were starting to register? You say, like, I wasn't, I didn't realize that I had a need to rest a day a week, but it turned out that I, I did. As soon as I started doing it, I realized that there was this, this thing that I, I needed in my life. You know, and I guess I'm wondering if um, whether we're just talking about regular people or we're talking about people that are actually doing important work in the sphere of social justice and reflecting on, you know, yeah, if you actually, from my perspective now, if I were really reflecting and, and had these tools at my disposal, I could have been even more effective or, or whatever in, in that work. You know, I think the specifically Jewish needs are connection to this profound heritage and tradition, a tradition that connects me to my grandmother and great-grandmother and great-great-great-great down the line. That sense of obligation to this extraordinary tradition that has been passed down to me for so many centuries and just a feeling that this is integral to who I am and as well as the need to be part of a community, right? A community, not just my, you know, once a month Shabbat dinner community, not just my, you know, twice a year showing up for synagogue community, but the Jewish community around the world and the Jewish community through time. So I think that my engagement with Judaism met those very Jewish needs, but I also think it met my human needs. Judaism sets just a much higher bar for ethical behavior than American law or secular society does. I mean, just the Jewish laws around speech, I mean, you know, you can gossip all you want in, within the letter of American law, right? Judaism just has this tremendous thinking around speech and so many other issues. I also think that my engagement with Judaism met spiritual needs that I had that I don't even know if I would have realized I had. I don't even know if I could have, articul could have articulated them, but, you know, unfortunately, and I don't think I'm alone in this, growing up, going to High Holy Day services, you read the sitter and you think, okay, God's a man in the sky, rewards and punishes us, all powerful, all knowing, all good. Don't buy it. Just don't buy it. So I guess I'm an atheist or agnostic. Those are not the only two divine options in Judaism. When I realized that there is this extraordinary world of theology, the idea that God is everything, we're all interconnected, the idea that God is what arises in deep relationship between two people, the idea that God is the process by which we become the highest, truest versions of ourselves, and so on, and so on, and so on, I began to think, wait a second, maybe I can actually have a Jewish spirituality. And then, you know, I started going to silent Jewish meditation retreats, and that changed everything for me, totally changed everything for me. It was the first time I'd engaged in this really passionate, emotional prayer. It was the first time I had a felt sense of the divine, and I just thought, oh, wow, this is such a different way of engaging and existing in the world. And it's added a dimension to my life that is just so important to me. So I, I feel like what you're, what you're helping us get to is the idea of mindfulness, which you speak about in your book and which is, um, for me, you know, ultimately boils down to, you know, being intentional, being, uh, being, and I do think that what Judaism does that I love, it's almost more than the content of any particular directives about how we should behave. It's more like 
the obsessive idea that every behavior matters, that like there's rules about how to tie your shoes. <laughs> like, like, I don't actually care about how I, I'm supposed to tie my shoes according to Jewish text. I love that it cares and, yes. and that yes. my collective of people cares because I think that when you enter into that mindset, and this, by the way, this gets to like millennia old debates about legalism, et cetera. Like not everybody thinks this is necessarily a good thing, but like I actually do believe that obsessing over minutia is not just obsessing over minutia. I think it then broadens out and creates a holistic kind of person. Because of that, I'm thinking about a realm that we haven't spoke about much, but which I know you're also connected to, which is roughly... Hasidism, um, spirituality, Hasidism. Like there was recently an article that you were mentioned in. Um, it had a like a, a folksy title. I think like Tai yeah, Chi with the Yeah, yeah. The title was the article was excellent. It was a good article, but like it it looks at Romamu Yeshiva. It looks at um, Romamu is not the newest of organizations in the grand scheme. It's pretty new, but the, it's Yeshiva. It's you know study program. It's deep, uh, and I don't even want to call it like necessarily just a study program, but its program of study and meditation and immersion is is very new, and you're part of it. And so I guess I wanted to ask. There's a lot of people, maybe not as many as we'd like, but there's a lot of people who do discover. Jewish text, Jewish tradition, many of these pieces late in life and do learning. Um, not all of them end up uh, in an intensive meditation and learning program. Not all of them describe in their book deep experiences of heat bodidut, of like talking in the forest to God um, or to something. So I guess I'd love to hear like what leads you not only on this path of you know, connecting to Judaism in a deeper way, but specifically connecting to like sort of some mystic traditions and spirituality in ways that you, maybe an earlier version of you would have been surprised by. I, when I showed up at my first Jewish meditation retreat, I knew very little about Judaism. I had done maybe a few meditation classes. I had no idea what was going on. It was uh, a retreat sponsored by Or Halev, which is a wonderful organization located in Israel that runs retreats around the world. And it was called Awakening the Divine, which I thought was sort of a weird name. And I was very skeptical. But I will tell you, over you know, five or six days of intensive prayer and meditation and doing these practices like Heat Bodhidut, which literally involves going out into nature and talking out loud without pause to God, whether or not you believe in any kind of God, you just do it. Um, it sort of broke something open in me. It connected me to some felt sense of something just so unimaginably big, but also intimate, that was somehow connected with just feeling boundlessly loved. And I, I think it's very hard to articulate, but I think it really, it helped me tap into something deeper, which I also felt like was connected to me in some way, connected to why I'm here, to what my purpose is on earth. And when I feel like I'm doing what I'm really meant to be doing, I feel more connected to that bigger thing. Right. And as I'm saying this, it all sounds very vague and woo woo and hard to explain. Um, it's really something more that you have to feel. But I think getting into that world, it was helped a lot by the, the wisdom of the mystics, the Hasids, right? Like that is a theology that very much informs the Jewish meditation world. And so I think that this is something that would appeal to a lot of modern Jews who have, you know, migrated over to Buddhism, thinking that meditation only exists in Buddhism, which is not true, right? There is, a, there is a tradition of Jewish meditation that dates back thousands of years, we think. And I do think you're right that Judaism is basically one big mindfulness practice. It is constantly demanding that we be present in our lives, right? It's like, don't just eat that meal. Stop, say a blessing over it, 
and really feel grateful for it. Don't just plow through your day. Stop. You know, say some prayers. Don't just go to sleep at night. Say a prayer before you go to bed at night. I mean, there's so much say a blessing of gratitude after you go to the bathroom. I mean, traditional Judaism is constantly calling us to not just walk around caught up in the stories and thoughts in our head, but to stop. Notice what's going on around us, the miracles that are going on around us, and be grateful. And I think that that's something that a lot of Jews would connect to if they knew about it. So uh, last question. Uh, my question is basically, what are the resources that need to be in the world that currently aren't that would allow somebody to guide their own education and then ultimately, I think, guide them from education to acting in a different way, being involved in a different way? It's a great question. And I, I, I think my answer is going to sound a bit self-serving, but that's not my intention. I really think it would be so helpful if more Jews with a similar background to mine re-engaged, learned deeply, and then created whatever it is that they create to help other Jews engage. So for me, that was a book. For others, it might be a documentary. It might be a musical. What, whatever your skill is, I think that having more people like me engage, learn very, very deeply, and then translate would be huge. I think what we kind of need right now is an army of translators, right? And this can, be all, this can also be Jewish professionals, rabbis, scholars who have that talent at translation. But what we need is an army of translators to bridge that gap between insider Judaism and outsider Judaism, right? Like, I can sort of, I sort of live in both worlds in some way and that I, you know, I, I know enough to be on the inside and to sort of talk the talk and walk the walk and have the language. But I also still have that sensibility of an outsider who feels like a little bit of an imposter. And I think that that's a valuable thing. I think we need more people who straddle both worlds and who can translate. So I think that that would be a huge thing. I also just think that I would just love to see the Jewish meditation world get bigger and bigger and bigger. I would love to have, see there be more organizations sponsoring more immersive retreats that people can have these kind of experiences that I've had that have been so powerful. I'd love to see the Ramayim Yeshiva become huge and be replicated all over the country because that was just this wonderful immersive experience where we studied Hasidism and Kabbalah and all these, and we studied Talmud and we studied Jewish law and we did meditation and prayer and it was just really powerful. So I'd love to see more of that programmatically. But I think the most important thing that we need now is translators. And I think that what we're doing is we're taking the stuff that we, you know, the wisdom that Judaism has that might be a little countercultural, might be pretty radical or subversive. We're taking that and we're translating it into language that Jews today can understand and actually implement in their daily lives. Thank you so much, Sarah Hurwitz, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. And thanks so much to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. As a reminder, Sarah Hurwitz's book is called Here All Along and you can find it online at whatever location you usually buy books. We've also got links to it in our show notes. So please, please, please go and check it out. It's really worth your time. Uh, we want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, last but not least, last but not least, you can hit us up via email, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com, Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. Go with one, go with both, go with the other, whatever works. 
So uh, those are the different ways you can be in touch with us. We want to remind you that uh, Elul Unbound is basically here. It's it's basically arrived. We are nearing the high holidays and we've got our initiative that is in place to help you prepare for those holidays. So go to our website, check out the Elul Unbound tabs, sign up for our daily list so that you can get uh, a once a day dose of Elul content to help you get prepped for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's our last reminder. The only other request we have is that we really deeply appreciate any financial donations that you can send our way. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate, either on a monthly recurring basis or as a one-time gift. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.